Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we'll be looking at uh, chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. So Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Thus far is a reading of of God's Word. Now, Martin Luther, uh, the great Reformed theologian, is known for a variety of reasons because he was such a significant figure in the Reformation. And as such a significant figure, he is often and oftentimes a quoted figure as well, isn't he? Especially when we're talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And one of the more famous quotes from Luther about the Christian is this. He says that the Christian... Um, at the same time or simultaneously, is both a saint and a sinner. And what he means by that is that we are uh, justified by Christ alone, that we are set in right relationship with God, made saints, right, holy ones before the Lord. But the fact of the matter remains that we still sin. We still sin. Now, as believers, we get that we are saints. I think for any person to be a a true believer, they have to also acknowledge, right, that that they're sinners. Um, But I don't think we tend to give much of any consideration to truly, in fact, as sinners, the great evil that we can do. Right? We, we tend not to think about the great evil that we as even saints yet sinners are able to commit. Right? We, we hear about maybe the, the heinous sin of another. And I think oftentimes what, what we say to ourselves is this. I know I deal with my own sin. I'm not perfect. But I would never in my life commit that sin. But brothers, I want us to see that that is a, a recipe for disaster. That attitude. Because you are taking far too lightly that body of death which you still remain in and what that body of death even now is capable of doing. Peter, who we're going to talk about in our text today. Peter himself at one time had that same attitude, didn't he? Uh, remember Mark chapter 14, when Jesus tells Peter and the apostles that they are going to fall away from him and that Peter is going to deny him. What was Peter's response to the Lord? 
even if they all fall away from you, I will never. What was Peter saying? He was saying, maybe that's a sin they struggle with. Maybe that's a sin they'll succumb to, but it's never a sin that I would do. And even after Jesus repeats this to Peter, right when He says to Peter, before the rooster crows two times, you will, you will deny Me. Peter again says what to the Lord? He says, Lord, even if I have to die with You, I will not deny You. And we all know how that story ends, don't we? Right? With Peter being brought to, to tears and his heart filled with shame because he did the very thing he told the Lord he could never do. And I think a part of our failure, a part of Peter's failure, is the fact that we have a nonchalant attitude about addressing our own sin. This is why the, the great John Owen uh, has that famous quote, right? Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now, he says that after considering the life of the Apostle Paul. And in particular, Paul's life in, in Romans chapter 7. And that internal struggle, that internal war, that battle that Paul is addressing there. And so, John Owen concludes this about even we who have the new nature in Christ, that sin is always acting, he says. Sin is always conceiving. Sin is always seducing. And it is always tempting. Brothers and sisters, right now, as you sit here today, there is a contest going on for your souls. Right? Sin does not just spring up out of nowhere. The nature of sin is this, that it quietly, slowly, even as you sit here, degree by degree, is creeping up into your heart. And it's inching its way higher and higher and higher. Disguising itself so that you would not see it. So that when the opportune time comes, it might present itself before you. And because you never dealt with that sin, you will enter into that temptation. And you will falter and you will fail. Right? This is why there is great wisdom and preparation, isn't there? Right, great wisdom and preparation. Uh, think about maybe uh, your own school days um, years ago. Or even maybe for some of you in your own places of employment today. Uh, don't you have like an annual uh, fire drill? Or nowadays, you know, you have an annual maybe uh, shooter safety drill that you have to go through. And it's not because they think that these things would ever happen. Right? They're certainly hoping that they would never happen. But they want to be ready for it, don't they? Right? They want to be ready so that everyone isn't running to the same exit door, not knowing what to do, trampling over one another, leaving people behind to die as a result. Right? They, they want to let you know how you can get to safety if this ever happens. And we prepare ourselves for many things in this life, don't we? Uh, we prepare ourselves if an intruder is ever going to come into our home. That's why maybe many of you here today have a firearm in your bedroom. Right? Not because you actually think that, that someone's going to come into your house and harm you or your family, but you want to be ready in case someone does. Right? We want to be ready for that. And so I ask, why is it not 
a greater emphasis than placed on doing this very thing for your soul. Right? Seeing that, that it's far more important to protect our soul even than it is to protect our, our physical being. Knowing that the nature of sin is such that as it gains a little ground in your heart, over time it will begin to harden your heart. Right? With the intent of bringing your soul into eternal ruin. Right? This is what the deceitfulness of sin does. And so why would we not spend our lives preparing and doing war against it? I think for many of us it's because we say, well, I'm pretty smart. I've been a Christian for a while. I intellectually know the Bible pretty well. So I think when, when temptation springs up, I'll know when it's there. Well, brothers and sisters, that was true of Peter, wasn't it? Right? Peter wasn't lacking intellectual knowledge. Right? Peter's issue was not that he didn't know enough. Peter's issue was that he acted contrary to what he knew. Right? He acted contrary to what he knew. And so as we begin to look at Paul's encounter with Peter, I don't want us to snub our nose up at Peter. But rather, as we read about the sin of Peter here, we need to see ourselves in Peter. right? Recognizing that what Peter was capable of doing, all of us as we sit here today likewise are capable of doing, if not by the grace of God aiding us and helping us to fight against it. So look with me please at verse 11 once more. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This brings us to our, our first point then this morning, which we'll call confronting sin. Confronting sin. Now, uh, remember that this letter is written prior to the Jerusalem Council, right? prior to, to 50 AD, so that sometime after Paul visits Jerusalem for the second time, which we read about last week in verses 1 to 10, and which we find the corresponding passage in Acts 11 and 12, right? Peter makes a journey to Antioch now to visit Paul and the saints there, also prior to Acts 15, right? prior to the, the Council of Jerusalem. And it's there that Paul reveals to us that, that he opposes Peter to his face because Peter stands condemned. That word for oppose also can mean um, I stood against or to, to stand against. So that Peter comes to Antioch, he does something that is self-condemning, and so Paul says, I had to stand up against Peter. Right? Before all, in fact, we're told he did. Now initially, someone might ask, well, well, why doesn't Paul just kind of pull Peter aside privately and uh, correct him in that manner? Isn't that what we are told we're supposed to do in Matthew 18? Well, the situation here is different, isn't it? Uh, Peter's sin is not a private sin. Right? Peter's sin is a very public sin. And it's a sin that, when he commits it, affects a whole bunch of people. And so Paul could not just pull him aside and privately correct him, but Paul had to correct him before all. And there's times that that needs to be done. Right? Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, that we rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That was this time. The rest had to see Peter be rebuked so they might stand in fear. Now in this verse, though, we learn many things. First, that it it demonstrates to us that although Peter was an apostle, that Peter was not above rebuke. Peter was not a man above correction. But we also need to see, though, that Paul's intent is not to embarrass Peter. 
Right? Paul's intent is not to show I'm the better apostle. Right? I'm the better apostle, the more faithful apostle than Peter. Right? That's not his intent as well, but Peter has created, has committed such a great sin that Paul cannot overlook it. And so he had to correct him. He had to address it. And he does it out of love for Peter. Right? He does it out of love for all of the saints who were following after Peter's bad example. And we know that, that it's love that motivated Paul because later in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, right, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, lest you too be tempted. So our desire, when we confront our brother and sister, is not to, to show how good we are and how bad they are. It's not so that we might be applauded by men who might see us. Right? But rather, when we confront a brother and a sister in the Lord, we ought to do so prayerfully. Right? Asking that the, that the Lord would bring about repentance in their heart over this. And at the same time, prayerfully going to the Lord, asking the Lord, that we ourselves would not be drawn into such temptation, that we ourselves would not fall understanding the weakness of our own heart. But what goes for Paul's confrontation with Peter, we also need to understand goes for us all, doesn't it? Right? There is no one in such a place of power or authority on earth who is above being corrected by others. That goes for the minister, doesn't it? Right? The minister is not above being corrected by the congregation when he sins. That goes for husbands. Husbands are not above being corrected by our wives when we sin. Right? Parents, you are not above being corrected by your children when you sin. But in saying that, I think there's the opposite side of that. Where you see in some Christian circles, you'll have some people who, who walk around and who are purposely looking for every single little fault that they can find with someone in order that they might point it out to them. But these people seem to forget Jesus is corrective in Matthew chapter 7 on that topic when He says in verse 3 to 5, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Which ultimately means what? It means that not only should we be concerned when the time is appropriate to confront our brother or sister who is sinning, but perhaps even more so, we need to to be more concerned with taking the time to confront our own sin. Right? The sin in our own lives. But you can only do that if you are a Christian who understands what we said earlier, that we are not only saints, but that we are sinners. Because the fact remains that you and I sin because we still harbor sin in our heart. I wonder if any of us here could be as honest as Martin Luther was about his own heart when he said this. He said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope or the Cardinals. That's what he said of his own heart. He was more afraid of what he knew was inside of him and what evil he was capable of doing. He was more concerned with that than what the Pope or the the Cardinals could do to him. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to get real with with who we are, of who we are able to, to, to be, 
who we oftentimes are, even when in our new nature, we don't want to be it. But it's that internal struggle that we still find in our hearts that we still have. Right? That, that wanting to do good, but not doing the good we want to do. Not wanting to do evil, but doing the evil we don't want to do. That struggle that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 7. And so we need to see that, that Peter doesn't want to sin against God by breaking table fellowship with the Gentiles. But Peter does it because he doesn't take the time to examine the indwelling sin that remained in his own heart. Right? That, was Paul's, or that was Peter's problem. That he didn't see that, that slowly over time, what was developing in his own heart was a greater fear of man than a fear for God. Right? But he didn't know that because he never took time to search it and examine his own heart to discover this. Right? It's only when we take that time to discover our own sinful capabilities, when we take the time to uncover and unearth our own daily sin that we commit, that we then can discover our own weaknesses. Right? We can discover our own frailty. We can discover that, that we need help in all of this, right? Because we cannot do it ourselves. And it ought to drive us then to Christ because Christ deals with the root of the problem of the heart in the Gospel. The remedy for our sinfulness is Christ. Right? Overcoming your sin and your wickedness is not about a moral transformation of, of picking your own self up by your own strength, but rather it comes from the transforming work that is done inwardly in the heart of the believer. Right? It is that transforming work that comes through the Spirit and through Word and through prayer. But only once you know the problem can you be driven to the solution. Right? If you are a believer here today that thinks that you're a pretty good believer, that you're pretty excellent in your faith, then you're never going to take the time to search your heart to discover your own sin and to bring it to God. And to say, oh Lord, deal with this sin. Help me. Right? Aid me by Your Spirit that when it comes I might flee from it. Teach me by Your Word what is in my heart that I might discover it so that I might fall into it as Peter did. Oh, I wonder how often we pray like David did. In the 139th Psalm, in verses 24, excuse me, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. You see, what David wanted the Lord to do was to search his heart. Help David to discover what was in there. Right? One way, through the, right through the Word, that he would be refined by the, the fiery Word of God. But what David also meant was, Lord, if it means placing me in affliction in order that my sin might be discovered, that I might be more acquainted with myself, then so do it. And I wonder how often we, we pray prayers like that. And when that sin is revealed, the question then becomes, how should we respond? And I think we need to look back to Peter to understand how we are to respond. Because I think Peter gives us a fantastic example of how we are to respond when confronted over our sin. Now you're sitting there right now saying, Peter doesn't respond. Right? There, as we read verses 11 to 14, is, is there any response from Peter? Does Paul tell us? 
That's because I think, in fact, no response from Peter is the greatest response of all. Because what it demonstrates is that, is that Peter was humbled when confronted for over his sin. Right? It recognizes that, that Peter had no response, that, that Peter doesn't try to excuse his sin or get defensive over his sin or justify his sin. He knew that he had sinned and so he receives his brother's rebuke. Believing what David declared in Psalm 141 verse 5. Saying, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. That lack of response in Peter right, demonstrates that Peter didn't refuse it. Right? He accepted it. And when we are confronted over our sin, brothers and sisters, we ought to accept it as well, right? in all humility. But not only that, when someone confronts us over our sin, you know what we also ought to do? Say thank you. I have to say thank you. For your brother or sister in the Lord has shown you a great kindness. And then it also then ought to drive us, drive us to our knees and, and a prayer of repentance to our own Lord. Because ultimately our sin is, is done against Him. And then our prayer there likewise is to include a, a thank you to our Lord for, for placing Right, brothers and sisters in our life who love us, love us enough to, to confront us over our sin. Now look with me at verses 12 and 13, please. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This leads us to our second point in this morning, which is Peter's sin. Our second point is Peter's sin. Remember what we learned about last week. That as uh, Paul visits the Jerusalem church, that Peter, James, and John are in agreement with Paul over what the Gospel is. Right? They were in agreement that the cross and Christ was enough that, that, the Jew, that the Gentiles didn't have to do anything further to be included in the covenant with God or to receive the, the promises of God. Right? They were justified by faith alone in Christ alone, by His grace alone. Circumcision and the ceremonial law were, were not necessary. Now, recognize this. Peter knew this. Peter confessed this. Peter affirmed this. Peter also practiced this himself. Right? Peter practiced what he believed initially, didn't he? Right? We're told here that Peter tells us that, or Paul tells us that when Peter came to Antioch, he ate with the Gentiles. Right? So there he was acting uh, according to his profession. He ate with the Gentiles. He was, he was eating though with people who the Jews would see as ceremonially unclean. And these Gentiles would have been eating ceremonially unclean foods with ceremonially or unclean hands. And yet, based on what Peter believed, he sat down and he ate with these Gentiles. Now, ultimately, he does that. Why? Well, remember what happens in Acts chapter 10. Remember the story of Peter and Cornelius? If you remember in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter's given this vision. And in the vision, uh, he is shown this sheet and on this sheet are all kinds of animals as well as reptiles and the birds of the sky. 
right? Animals that the, that the Jews were, could not eat because it was considered ceremonially unclean. But in that vision, what is Peter told? God says, rise Peter and eat. And Peter responds, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And what was God's response to him? What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, as Peter's having this vision, Cornelius' men have come to visit Peter, haven't they? And the Spirit says to Peter, uh, go with Cornelius' men. And as Peter goes there and he, he talks to them and he shares with them the Gospel and they believe and, and, the, and they are given the, the Holy Spirit, what does Peter conclude at the end of all of that? In Acts chapter 11, verse 17, if God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed, how can I stand in their way? And when those around heard it, they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God granted repentance that leads to life. You see, so Paul is well aware by the time he travels to Antioch that the Gentiles have been given this gospel of free grace. That nothing needs to be added to it. Not circumcision nor the ceremonial law. That's why he came and he ate with them. But the question remains, why did he change them? Right? What changed in Peter? Well, ultimately, we are told that certain men came from James. And it's because these men who came from James come and Peter sees them that he all of a sudden separates himself. Right? He draws himself back from the Gentiles. Now, I want us to understand that the men who come from James don't have James's blessing to do what they did. Right? They don't come with James's blessing. In fact, one reason that we know that is because these men are described in the letter that is written after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And it's these men who are described in verse 24 of Acts 15 as having gone out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Okay, So these men that, that came from Jerusalem, came from James, did not come with the blessing of James. But it's as soon as these men show up that Peter now all of a sudden starts acting differently. Because Peter knows what they believe. And so... Peter's sin is not believing wrongly, but it's, it's acting sinfully. Right? Peter's sin is that he cared more about the Judaizers than he cared about God. Right? He feared the Judaizers more than he feared God. Now, it wasn't Peter's intention to do such a thing. So why does he do it? Right? Why does he act contrary to truth? Well, brothers and sisters, just for the same reason that you and I oftentimes do. Right? Because Peter succumbed to temptation and to pressure. right The very thing that you and I oftentimes are, are guilty of. But I want us then to, to learn a, a valuable lesson from the life of Peter here. Because Peter was a great advocate for the Gospel, wasn't he? Right? Peter was arrested. He was willing to die for Christ. Right? And for preaching Christ, if you remember in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And so the question is, how can Peter go from such boldness to all of a sudden such cowardice. Right? How can there be this great change? And ultimately, I think that we can ascribe it to uh, that Peter has become lax in his walk with God. Right? He has become lazy with his walk with God. And this is what results when you do. If you remember what God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord, and remember he has no regard for, for Cain's offering, 
What does he say to Cain? He says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that, that sin is crouching at the, at the door of every single one of us here today. But Jesus gives us the remedy against sin, doesn't He? And he gives us that remedy when He tells the disciples in Matthew 26, verse 41, as He goes off to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is warning to them as a warning to us all. He's saying, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. What does He mean by that? We are to watch over our hearts. We are to watch over our thoughts. Watch over our speech. Watch over what situations we place ourselves in. Right? Watch over what we spend our time doing. This is so needful. Because we need to understand that so long as we live in these mortal bodies, sin is going to continue to bubble up and to rise up. And so the will of God is that we would watch over ourselves, watch over our souls, and be constantly and diligently making use of prayer. This is what He teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't He? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He wants us to watch over our souls and to, to pray, God, keep our foot back from sin this day. Right, help make my sin known to me that I would not be overcome by it, that I would not give in to temptation when it comes. This is what Peter failed to do, and as a result of that temptation to separate from the Gentiles, he did. In order that he might pander to the Jews. And we might say, well, that's silly. Why does he care what man thinks? Well, a lot of us care about what men think. Because as Jesus said, that the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. right? The renewed soul which wars against the lust of the flesh is willing. That's what Jesus is saying. right? The Spirit inside of you is, is willing to watch and pray. The Spirit in you is willing to, to guard against sin and temptation and to obey the every command of Christ. But it's that corruption that remains in us that is ready at an instant to cave into sin. And to indulge in temptation? This is why, brothers and sisters, and we need to see that the mortification of sin is so vital for Christian living. Right? Indwelling sin is opposed to our new nature in Christ. And so we must suffocate it. We must suffocate the sin that is within and give it no opportunity to grow. Think of it like this. A fire needs oxygen to continue to burn, doesn't it? You remove the oxygen and the fire, and the fire ceases, doesn't it? No longer burns. We need to consider that in the Christian life as well. That we need to suffocate that indwelling sin so that we might not give it any opportunity to grow. Now the problem in the Christian life is that oftentimes we are not watching and praying and so we are just providing the oxygen it needs to burn and to burn and to burn. But if we are mortifying the deeds of the flesh as God has called us to, if we are watching over our souls and in prayer, then brothers and sisters, what you're going to see is that you're going to leave no opportunity for sin and temptation in your life. And over time, temptation and sin, you'll see, will, will continue to dwindle 
Right? More and more and more as you, as you suck out the oxygen, as you suck out its life within you. Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here he tells us the means by which we mortify the deeds of the flesh. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. All human effort to mortify sin will fail. It must be the Holy Spirit working inside of us who enables us to cut off sin's power and sin's life and sin's strength in our life. But this is a daily work we must attend to. And understand this, brothers and sisters, that the Christian life is not just a thinking life, but it is a life of doing. It's a life of doing. And so daily, as we grow in knowledge of Christ, through thinking about God and His attributes and His works and and reading His Word, you will be putting to death sin. Through daily prayer, you will be putting to death sin through the means of grace. Right? Attending to the Lord's day. Corporate worship of God's people. You will be putting to death sin. As we are conformed to the image of Christ, you will leave no room or opportunity for sin and temptation to, to flourish in your heart. Because the Spirit working inside of us will cause our hearts to abound in grace. The Spirit who is working in us through these various means will cause us to abound in the fruit of the Spirit, right? which works against the works of the flesh. It is the Holy Spirit through these means, through prayer, through the corporate gathering of God's people, that He will continue to bring our hearts every day closer and closer to the cross and to Christ. That every day, He will drive us into a deeper communion with Christ so that that habit of sin within us will continue to be weakened and weakened over time until one day when Christ returns, it shall be destroyed. And so that's what we all ought to desire. Because we see the great evil that we can do. Right? We read about what Peter did. Peter's actions didn't just affect Peter. They affected even Barnabas who was led astray by his actions. Right? Our sinful actions do not just affect us. Right? They affect others as well. This is why we have to be so careful, brothers and sisters, in how we walk. We need to make sure that our walk is, is in step with our profession. So that we do not injure the gospel, that we do not injure others, that we do not injure ourselves. This leads us to our third and our final point, which is Paul's rebuke. Please look with me at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We looked at Paul confronting Peter. We looked at uh, Peter's sin, which was withdrawing table fellowship from the Gentiles out of fear of the Judaizers. And now what we want to look at when we look at Paul's rebuke is really the, the, the content of the rebuke. Right? What, what is Paul saying here? It was that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Right? That was the real crux of, of the rebuke. That Paul's actions were not in lockstep with the truth of the gospel. They were contrary to the gospel. And so, if you want to ask, 
Well, when do I know when to confront a brother or sister when they sin? Or when I think they sin? We have to ask ourselves, is it a matter of opinion? Is what they did a matter of opinion? Is it a matter of preference? Is it perhaps your perception, but another perception could be different? Or does it have to do with the truth of the Gospel? Right? Does it have to do with the truth of the Gospel? When it has to do with the truth of the Gospel, then feel free to go and confront them. Although Peter believed the truth, he practiced falsehood. What does the Gospel teach us? The Gospel says Christ paid the price for sinners. The Gospel says that Jesus has done it all and that through faith in Him, what He has done becomes ours and there is nothing more to do. That is a message of liberty, isn't it? But what we need to see is that through Peter's actions, what Peter was doing was reestablishing the law. Right? Peter is now bringing all of these people back under the bondage of the law through his actions. Right? And separating from the Gentiles when the Jews arrived, he made the Gentiles think, oh, we have to be like them in order to be a part of God's people. Right? He made them think in order to be Christians, we need to first be Jews. And so we need to see that by Peter's actions, not by his words, but by his actions, He was denying justification by faith alone. And so this teaches us a a very important lesson. I want us to see how much people don't pay attention so much to our words as they do our actions. We can say we have a high view of the local church, but do our actions demonstrate that? We can say that we love our brothers and sisters in the faith, do our actions demonstrate that? Uh, We can say that we have... Um, experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do our lives demonstrate that? Uh, we can say that we have the Spirit indwelling us and that we've been called to, to holiness and obedience to the Lord. And through the Spirit, we've been enabled to do it, but do our lives demonstrate that? Fathers, when you tell your children, when you grow up, you are to love your wife like Christ loves the church. Do your actions demonstrate that? Uh, or are you teaching your children a different lesson by what you do? Mothers, right? As you talk to your daughters and say you are to submit to our husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Do you demonstrate that in your own households? Are you teaching them a whole different example by how it is that you live? You see, I want us to understand that our words are oftentimes meaningless to others. When our actions look seem far more profound, right? Because they are actually what we're willing to do. And that's oftentimes what our children and those around us observe and see and hold on to in their lives. Right? Especially when our actions don't align with our words. Right? They see our actions and that's what they carry with them oftentimes, isn't it? Paul, or excuse me, Peter, while in Antioch, lived like a Gentile, although a Jew. What does that mean? It means that when he first went to Antioch, he was living according to his new nature in Christ. Right? He, was a, he was living according uh, to the freedom that he had in the Gospel. And now he's turning around and, and living in, in a, another manner which makes the Gentiles believe that now they have to live like the Jews. And so his behavior sends a totally different message from his words. And so we need to see that our practice, our practice of the faith is important for the advancement of the Gospel. Right? That, that we must practice what we believe. But also remember that as you do, don't just consider yourself, 
but consider others as well. Right? When you make decisions, do you consider the local body? Do you consider your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you say, is what I'm doing harming the gospel here? Uh, is what I'm doing loving my brother or sister in the Lord? Is what I'm doing going against what I've told them that I've believed? Perhaps we would be more careful in our actions, right? If that's what we thought about before we did things. But finally, as we draw to a close this morning, I want us to see one, one final but very important lesson from the, the life of Peter as we examine it this morning. Although Peter sinned, uh, Peter's life, I think we all can agree, is, is characterized far more so by his faith and obedience to the Lord, wasn't it? And that is owing all to the grace of Christ, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, because when Peter fell, he was able to every time get back up. And he was only able to do that because Jesus was there to lift him back up out of the abundant grace and the infinite love that he had towards Peter. He would not allow Peter to fall away. I love what what Jesus tells Peter uh, in Luke's Gospel. In fact, it's amazing to think about that Jesus says this as He tells Peter that you are going to deny Me three times. In Luke chapter 21, verses 31 and 32, uh, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, uh, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Right? Jesus knew that Peter was going to fall, but He knew that Peter was going to repent. He was going to get back up. He was going to turn around and look to Christ by faith once more. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is the great High Priest who intercedes on behalf of His people. And as He prays to the Father, having a, the same will as the Father has, right? the, the Father will answer every time right, the prayer of His Son. And that is what He has done. And, and in Christ, brothers and sisters, we have the irrevocable gift of God's saving grace ourselves. And Christ right now intercedes for you and I in the heavenly places. right? By His power, although we may stumble sometimes, although we may fall, Christ will never lose those who belong to Him. Right? Christ is the shield of His people. He will keep us in Him by His Spirit. He will not allow the devil to have you. For your heart is His. This is why He sent His Son to suffer and to die. So that you might belong to Him. And that you might have that everlasting life to come by grace and through faith in His name. So that every time that you fall, you shall rise again, for you have been washed in the blood of this Lamb. His Spirit that is inside of you will, will never allow you to ultimately fall away and fail. Right? For the Spirit will not fail to conform you to the image of, his, of Christ. Right? The, the Spirit will not fail in making you like Christ. The Spirit will not fail in producing joy and peace and assurance and holiness in you. The Holy Spirit will not fail in causing you to, to hate sin more and more and to have, have an ever-increasing love for Christ in order that you would remain in Christ until the end. So that just as Christ 
picked up Peter from the ground. And he dusted Peter off. And he led him into all righteousness. I want us to see something as we close today, brothers and sisters. That the Lord likewise will pick you up when you falter and you fall and you sin. He will dust you off. He will take you by the hand. And He likewise is going to lead you into all righteousness until the day that He returns to gather all of His people again. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Uh, We thank You, Lord, that we know that we are both uh, saints and sinners. Uh, but that uh, You will not allow us to succumb to sin ultimately. Uh, For He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. Uh, That, Lord, all of those that You have called into fellowship with Your name, You will suffer to lose not one of them. For we know Your voice and we will never ultimately leave You For You will not leave us. And You will not forsake us. For Your grace cannot fail. For Your death was effectual. And it will provide everything that You purchased in it. And that is our justification and our sanctification and ultimately our glorification. Uh, Lord, as we gather this morning, I ask that You would help to reveal in us our sin that You would give us a greater desire to uncover the sin within us. To not try to bury it down in our hearts and forget about it, but to be real about it in order that we might deal with it so that we might not be surprised and succumb to temptation because of our lax attitude towards sin and toward our walk with You. And so, Lord, we ask that You would strengthen our hearts this day, that You would cause us to abound in Your grace. And we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.